when you face a crisis, difficult time in your life, what is your tendency in those times come in your life? Do you trust or do you distrust God? Do unexpected, difficult circumstances cause your desire for God to increase or does it cause your desire for God to be weakened? If you didn't notice, and Richard read this, before the text of Psalm 63 begins, there's a note there. It reads, a psalm of David, so it tells us the writer of the psalm is David, and the note also tells us that David was in the wilderness. This gives us an idea of the setting for this particular psalm. And in verse 11, we know that David is king of Israel at the time this psalm was written. The situation that's going on for Psalm 63 is that someone was seeking to destroy David's life. He tells us that in verse 9. Uh, This note that we have at the beginning there communicates to us, most people, most scholars believe, a time when Absalom, David's son, was plotting or has plotted to overthrow his father as king, and he's seeking to proclaim himself as the king of Israel. And in doing so, Absalom runs David, his father, out of Jerusalem, and David goes into the wilderness. You can read 2 Samuel chapter 15, and you get a better idea of what's going on there. So, put yourself in David's situation. David is not only at odds with his son, which would be difficult enough, but Absalom is hostile to the point that he wants to see his father dead. I could, you could probably say... That's a bad day when your son and you are so divided to the point that he would want to kill you and take your life. David is in danger of losing his life. And no doubt, this separation between him and his son is causing a great deal of heartache and a great deal of grief for him. How would you respond in this situation? What would be your mindset? Put yourself in David's position. Imagine what his, what's going through his mind, what's in his heart. I believe we can learn from Psalm 63 what to do when we are in situations when we're brokenhearted, when we're we're frightened, when difficult situations come about in our lives. I think this is a perfect psalm for us to go to and, and think about and meditate upon. What does David do? David prays. This entire psalm is David praying to God. That's what's going on here. He he asks. For one thing, not protection, notice that, not protection, not for rescue, what would most of us be doing? God, get me out of this. And the the sooner, the better. David asked God for God himself. David asked for God to satisfy his soul like water satisfies thirst in a dry and weary land. Oh God, he says, you are my God. I seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David's making a comparison here. My soul thirsts. My flesh yearns for you. He says, just so you want to know what it's like, for us to understand, it's like being a dry and a weary land where there's no water. Think about it. The last two days. Working, mowing the grass, cutting the fields, dry and weary land, and there's no water to quench the thirst. Can you imagine that? 
David turned to God in this crisis and he found his desire for God was intensified. His delight in God's love grew deeper and his dependency on God became even stronger. Psalm 63 tells us that God brings the best out of His people in the worst of times. So if you're looking at your handout there, the main idea is the priority of seeking God. The priority of seeking God. Remember where David's at. Remember the situation he is in and what his mindset is, how that can affect him physically, and what's going on in his life. And verse 1, David says, Oh God, you are my God. Simple words, right? David knew God in an intimate and personal way. There's a big difference, I think, between knowing about a person and actually knowing that person, right? Wouldn't you agree? You can know about people all day long, but if you actually know that person, it makes a tremendous difference. David begins with a statement that defines the relationship that he has with God. David says, the God of creation, the make, listen to this, the God of creation, the maker of heaven and earth is what? My God. Let that sink in. Sometimes I think we lose sight of that. The creator of this universe, the one that put it all together, the one that sustains it and holds it all together. If you know Jesus Christ, God is your Father. He is your God. Personally. In David's life, no one else competed for David's worship and devotion. No one else competed for David's obedience and his service. David is saying, God, listen, to you're mine. It's kind of like when two kids are playing with the toys and one doesn't want to share. What do they say? That's mine. Right? That's mine. That belongs to me. And that's the relationship if you know Christ today. God is your God. David is saying, God, you're mine. David says, God, you're all I need. Think about the situation he's in. What he's crying out for here. Just as a point of application, as a believer this morning, do you have a relationship with God in which you can say, God, you're my God? Does that ever go through your mind as a believer that God is your God? Can you say that and know, bottom line, that God's all you need? Remember the situation David's in. Rhetorical question. How many, how many of you ever have been in a situation... Not maybe like David's, I certainly hope not. But how many of you have been in a hard spot, difficult, trying time in life? And you understand what David may be thinking and what's going through his mind. God, you're my God. As a believer, can you say that and know that God's all you need regardless of what's going on? Does God have first place in your heart and in your life when a time and a difficult situation like that comes where God... It's the one that satisfies you. God is the one you go to. How about here this morning, if you're an unbeliever? If God is ever to be your God, there must have been a time when you met Him personally through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way to have God as your Father. Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You can't know God today. You can't claim God is your God 
unless you go through Jesus. Jesus Himself said that. No one comes to the Father, how? But through Me. No one can know God. God is your God this morning, unbeliever. When you acknowledge your sin to God and you receive the free gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of sin that He offers you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There is no other way to have God as your God but through His Son. Look at verse 1 again. Notice what David says here. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Notice what David said. Earnestly I seek you. And again, to remind you, where is David at? What's going on in his life? What's his situation like? Earnestly I seek you. Some of your translations read, early I will seek you. Uh, The difference there shouldn't cause us a problem. The idea... While some translations use the word early and some use earnest, the idea is that of seeking God before seeking anything else or before anyone else. It has the idea of priority. What was David's priority in this situation? God. I know God is my God. The word seek means to have a great initiative. Question. Who has the initiative here? David does. It means to have a great initiative. It means that the believer is not sitting back, idly waiting for God to come to them. God's there, but David says, I'm not waiting on God to come to me. I'm going after Him. I'm earnestly seeking Him. Instead, that person who has a passion for God pursues Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They will seek God, and they'll do so through His Word. They'll seek out God in prayer, and they'll seek out God in the fellowship of other believers. That's three ways that God gives us to to seek Him. It's through His Word, through praying, and the fellowship with other believers. They will seek God in worship, both individually and corporately. Notice next, David says, My soul thirsts. For you, my my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul thirsts, and my flesh faints. David's desire for God was that of like a parched body needing life-giving water. I was talking to some. Me and this morning, they were talking about being out yesterday working, right? It didn't take long for that tongue to what? You get get thick and you're kind of, you're looking for water and you're in the cab of that tractor and the air conditioner's not working. That body's what? I mean, it it doesn't take long at all. David's desire for God was that of a parched body needing water. David wants more of God in this situation. I remember... When I was in uh, the Navy, I was stationed on an aircraft carrier. And in one particular deployment, we were in the Indian Ocean. Everybody know where the Indian Ocean's at? Just find the United States and, and go to your right on the map. Right out here, close to Australia, you'll find the Indian Ocean. <clears throat> at particular times of the year, the temperature in the Indian Ocean can reach 125 degrees. Okay? 
And you thought it was hot here yesterday. 125 degrees. Now, picture this. We're on a ship with a flat top with black non-skid on it. That temperature easily goes from 125 to about 140 to 145. And you're thinking, man, do y'all get out there and wear t-shirts and shorts? No. You wore a long sleeve, thick cotton shirt that was a turtleneck that rolled up to your neck right here. You wore long dungaree, for you who don't know what dungarees are, that's blue jeans. <laughs> I didn't know what dungarees were when I went in the Navy. They said, we're going to issue some dungarees. And I thought, okay. They're blue jeans. And so you would wear those long, thick blue jeans and you would... Uh, you'd have these locks boots on, which were slip-on boots, and you would take your socks and you would fold your pants up and you'd stuff them down in your socks. And then on your head you had this thing called a cranium. had a hard plastic top on it, big old plastic things over your ears that muffled the sound, and your head was completely covered, and then you wore these big old goggles. And then most of us would take a bandana. Ours were purple because we fueled the planes. Jet fuel is kind of purplish looking. And we'd cover our faces up to our nose with that bandana tied around. The only thing exposed was a little bit of skin around here. Now you take 145 degrees and then put all that clothing on. And then you got the jet blast off the jets. When they turn, they're blowing that hot air on you. I don't know what the temperature was, but it was hot. And we'd be out there for an hour and a half at a time. And then we'd come back in, and we didn't go into an air-conditioned space because your body was so hot, you couldn't stand the coolness. They'd take us, we'd go into a little area, it'd be about 100 degrees in there until our bodies could cool down. Do you think we wanted something to drink? Do you think we were thirsty? And we couldn't drink cold water either. We had to drink... Room temperature water because the shock on your body would be so intense you couldn't drink the cold water or take air conditioning. Your body had to come down. There would be times where you... It's hard to imagine. The body was just so drained and you were so parched. Can you imagine what it felt like? 145 degrees, all that clothing on. That's the picture that David's wanting us to get here. My soul... My flesh, it thirsts. God, it faints for you. But where does David go? It's, just, it's, it's like being on that flight deck with 145 degree temperature and no water. God, I want, I want you, God. I want you. If God is your God, you will always desire more of Him. David calls God my God. But he wanted more. He wanted to go deeper. He wasn't satisfied. Or he was satisfied, but he wasn't satisfied. He knew there was more in his whole being craved God as a thirsty man craves water. You get the picture? David's telling us that having lost everything, the one thing he longs for is God. He thirsts for God. David wants God. Now you think about it. If you would lost everything, what would be the one thing you would want? Your son has run you off the throne. He's so hostile toward you, he wants to kill you. And you are in the desert. He's lost everything. And David says, the one thing I want is God. 
God, I want you. What's going on here is is worship. You worship the one thing that you really want, right? Worship is about saying this person, this thing, this experience, this whatever is what matters to me most. And what is it that matters to David the most in the most difficult, hard time in his life? Is God. God has first place in his life. So I have a question for you. How do you know where and what it is that you worship? How do you know that? You ever think about that? Where and what it is I worship? I I think it's easy. And here's how you do that. You follow the path of your time and your affection and your energy and your money and your allegiance. And at the end of that path, here's what you find. You find a throne sitting there. And whatever or whoever is on that throne is what is of highest value to you. What is sitting on the throne is of highest value to you. Now my question for you is, what's sitting on the throne of your life as a believer? Or as an unbeliever? You worship what matters most to you. David says, here's the thing that matters most to me. The thing he wants most is what? Give me God. Give me God. Look at verse 2. So I have looked, past tense, upon you in the sanctuary. Sanctuary refers to the holy place. Beholding your power and your glory. Here David is recalling a, a, a previous time when he had this vision of the Lord in the tabernacle. The holy place. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and I beheld your power and I've beheld your glory. So now... In the wilderness, David longs to see God's power and His glory in the wilderness. Do you you understand that? I've been in the sanctuary. I've been in the place of worship. I've been in that place and I've seen God's power and His glory. But now, where am I? I'm in the wilderness. David knew his God was just as able to reveal himself in the wilderness as he was in the sanctuary. God is the same everywhere. There in the desert with no choir, no musicians, no instruments. What did David do? He worshipped God. The idea is that the pain of the wilderness gave David an increased hunger and a renewed commitment for God. The wilderness gave that to him. The hard time in his life gave that to him. My question is this, what about you? Have you pursued God in your wilderness experience and increased your desire for Him? When you've been in that wilderness, when you've been in that... And listen, the wilderness is different for everybody, right? Your wilderness may not be a wilderness to me, but it's still a wilderness to you, right? And God knows that's a wilderness for you. But what about when you're in that time? Have you pursued God? Have you increased your desire for Him? Let me ask you this. Do you think God wants you to pursue Him? Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you pursued God in that wilderness time? Look at verses 3 and 8 on your handout. The believers delight in God. The believers delight in God. In case I didn't mention that in verses 1 and 2, it's the believers' desire for God. 
Now we have the believer's delight in God. Because your steadfast love, listen to these words, is better than life. My lips will praise you. Again, think about David's situation. Where's he at? He's hiding in the wilderness. He's running for his life. And he may well be killed during the night by someone who used to serve him, but now who serves his son. Can you imagine that? How about you? Have you ever been in a situation where it seemed that everything was dark and it was hopeless? How do you as a believer deal with that? You remind yourself of what David says, that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life itself. The word steadfast love here refers to God's mercy, His favor, His faithfulness, His goodness toward His people. David says, that's better to me than life. What might just happen to David? He might just lose his life. He says, but God is better to me than my own life. God's loving kindness was David's highest good. It was better than natural life. It was the greatest of all life's blessings. David, listen, David wanted God more than he wanted to live. Notice verse 3. Here's David's response to his words. Because your steadfast love is better than life, what does he say? My lips will praise you. David responded to God with praise and worship. Again, where's David at? What's going on in his life? Notice that response continues in verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. David just doesn't use his mouth, I will bless you. He also uses what? His body. And in particular what? His hands. Notice, don't, for, don't miss this, how long will he do this? As long as he lives. As long as we are alive, we are to honor and to worship and praise God. With an intensity. Now, I realize that many believers are not convinced that the idea of raising hands to God in worship is something we should do. Rhetorical question. How many of you are uncomfortable when somebody beside you might get a a little, you know, I don't know, the Lord gets on them and they get happy and they might just raise their hand? Does Does that make you feel uncomfortable when they do that? Come on now. Be honest. In case you do, Psalm 88, verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Psalm 134, verse 2. Lift up your hands to the holy places and bless the Lord. Psalm 143, verse 6. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. It's all through the Bible. People raising their hands in praise to God. I don't want to be critical here, but listen, us Baptists, it's okay for us to raise our hands. Our holiness and our Pentecost and our Church of God, brothers, that's not just for them, that's for us. It's for the people of God. 
to raise our hands and give praise to God. So the next time someone kind of throws up a hand, maybe you, you do it with them. Maybe you help them out. Verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now some of your translations use marrow and fatness. My soul will be satisfied as with rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The idea of the words uh, fat and rich food is that of a rich, plentiful feast. There's a complete spread before you. Think of homecoming Sunday when you walk in that fellowship hall, right? Yeah. What, what's usually going on in there? There's two tables running almost the length of the fellowship hall with food on it, right? You have a hard time figuring out what am I going to get and what am I going to leave off. And some of you figured out what I don't get the first time, I just get the second time. David said it's like a banquet. Notice though, it's not his body that's satisfied. David says the soul will be satisfied. David went from a thirsty soul to a satisfied soul. The soul is satisfied, which has an effect. And notice, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David is voicing to God an all-consuming passion for God and only Him. David says God is better than life. God alone can satisfy. If you're here today and you know Jesus, can you say that? That God is better than life. God's better than life. God is better than life. I've told myself that several times in the last few weeks. God's better than life. Only having God through Jesus can bring this kind of satisfaction. The gospel, the good news that through Jesus you can be forgiven of your sin and made right God is the good news that results in a satisfied soul. Believer, again, let me ask you this question. Does Jesus satisfy your soul? Notice the believer can't get his mind off God. David can't get his mind off God. Verse 6, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. What is he saying here? Whether it's daytime or nighttime, God is my greatest thought. In other words, all the time, God is my passion. He's my longing. There's a song we sing sometimes. It's called, Be Thou My Vision. Remember singing that? Be Thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence, my life. What's that song telling us? That God is our heartbeat. He's our passion. He's our vision. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Wow, that's a hard one for us to get past, right? Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of this earth. Let me ask you this, believer, as a way of application. Are you preoccupied with God? 
In other words, are you obsessed with God? And you're like, I thought that's what the preacher did. I thought he got obsessed with God. Well, I think there'd be something wrong if you had a pastor who wasn't obsessed with God. But that's not just for him. It's for all the people of God to be obsessed with God. If you're more obsessed with relationships, possessions, having the perfect marriage, having perfect children, with yourself, with hobbies, with getting ahead in life, with work, you are not living out the biblical description of a Christian. And the biblical description of a Christian is what David's saying here, I want God. I want more of Him. Verse 7. Why does David remember and meditate? For because you have been my help. It's because God gives protection to those He loves. Notice how David refers to this protection. And in the shadow of your wings. Now, in the Bible, a shadow is a common figure of speech pointing to a place of safety. That's what that's referring to. And wings have the idea, some of you are, are thinking ahead here, wings have the idea of a hen spreading her wings for her chicks to run under. Does that sound familiar? I come from the lips of who? Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23. The point David is making is clear. God's people are safe regardless of what's going on. How safe did David feel? He says, I will sing for joy in the shadow of your rings regardless of what's going on. I'm going to sing for joy. Because there's protection and safety in the shadow of God's wing, David says, verse 8, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Notice what he says. My soul clings. Cling to means to follow wholeheartedly, to be in hot pursuit of something. It's an intense desire, a serious, strong effort to stay close to God. Where's David at? And what is his priority in this situation? God. Cling to God. Why cling? Why follow wholeheartedly? Notice what David says, because your right hand upholds me. A believer can cling to God in confidence because it's God who is holding him. Don't miss this. David says, I cling to you as you hold me. You get the picture? There's a balance there. David clings to God wholeheartedly and he pursues after God, but underneath it all, God's hand has David. He has you, believer. Lastly, verses 9 through 11. The believer's dependence on God. David says three things about his enemies here. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. David says that his enemies are going to go to the place of the dead. They're, they're going to be slain in battle. They're going to have their lying mouths stopped by the Lord. Now, here's the question we need to ask, and I ask, on what basis did David pin these words? How did he know the future end of his enemies? I think David's knowledge of the future was based upon God's character and how God has always acted in the past. When the final chapter of history has been written, everyone, the righteous and the unrighteous, will stand before the judge of all the earth. 
and receive what is coming to them. No one will get a pass. David here is simply trusting God. David does not conspire in this psalm to think out how he's going to regain his kingdom. Have you noticed that? That's now been a thought on David's mind. How am I going to get my kingdom back? He simply trusts God. And notice that God also gave David a clear vision of what's coming. David is convinced of his being restored to his position as king. He does so because he knows that's the divine purpose of God. Now here's the application. If you're a believer, listen to me, you can be confident about your future. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that in your future you'll be delivered from your circumstances. But you can be confident about your eternal future. You can affirm what John said while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know the story of John and the Isle of Patmos, right? Exile, the only one out there. And what does he say to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom? I want to ask you this question. What do you trust in when things really go bad? Or who do you trust? What do you trust? Do you trust in your own wisdom? Do you trust in your plan? Do you trust in someone else to get you out of that? Or are you like David and do you run after God? David trusts in God in his circumstance and because he trusts in God, he's able to rejoice in God. This psalm, I think, shows us the experience of longing for God when all that there is in life or in the situation has been knocked out from under us, has been taken away from us when everything is gone. Our biggest problem is that because we have so much, right? Because we have so much, we confuse the gift with the giver. We treasure the gifts that have been given to us by the giver to the point that we prefer the gift over the giver. And David is telling us that's not the way it's supposed to be. David was in a position where God had taken away everything. And David says, give me the giver because he's the one thing that can satisfy me. My kingdom, my family will not fully, completely satisfy me. It's God. And let me let you in on a little secret. That is how God has built each and every one of us. Our hearts are restless until we find rest in Him. Because the giver did not make us to be filled up with gifts, but to be filled up with Him. Let me ask you this as a way of application. Review your past week, or maybe your past month, and the hard drive's clicking, is it not? You're trying to think back. If you're like me, yesterday's about as far as I can get sometimes. Review your past week. 
Did my schedule reflect that seeking God was a priority in my life? You say, well, that's my priority, but I've been under a lot of pressure lately. David was under pressure, was he not? Listen, pressure is what reveals our true priorities. Pressure is what reveals our true priorities. When pressure's on, everything but the essential gets put on hold, right? The Holy Spirit's telling us through David, seeking God must be a priority. It's essential for you. You've got to be like David, the man after God's own heart, pursuing God. Seeking after God means keeping your passion for God alive. Christianity is not just a matter of the head, but it's a matter of what? The heart. As you think on what God has done for you in Christ, you ought to be moved emotionally. As you meditate on His great love and faithfulness toward you over the years, in spite of your failures, you ought to feel love for Him. And here's what I want to say. If you're in love with God... You will make time to spend with Him. And listen, I'm like everyone else. Some days, it all gets thrown up in the air, right? And you're scrambling to try to pick it all up. I understand that. But let's be honest with ourselves. Every day is not like that, right? If you're in love with God, you will make time to spend with Him. That includes time in the Word, renewing your mind, Seeing God and seeing how precious He is includes time praying. Praying for your needs, yes, but for the needs of others. Praying for lost people. Praying for the nations to come to Christ. What you have is what you want others to have, right? This is yes. And so you give your money and you share the gospel with people in your family, people in your neighborhood and your lost loved ones. You share the gospel with them so they might know what you know. It includes times of praise and worship and expressing your love for Him. Let, let me let you in on something. Uh, the meditation for preparation thing I send out, some of you call it medication for preparation. <laughs> if it's medication, that, that's fine. But get along with that. And think about the Scriptures you're going to hear this Sunday and listen to the music and, and think about God. Meditate on Him. Let me tell you a little secret. If you do that, you might just find something happening. You might find a hand going up in there that's never done that before. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for...